The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 10. Praise God. We're continuing this week in our series. It's called Our Story Begins, uh, where we've been studying the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis together. Uh, The first words of Genesis chapter 1 are this, in the beginning, God. And this sets the tone for the rest of Genesis and really all 66 books of the Bible. The Bible is God's story, but because of his great love for us and immeasurable mercy upon us, He has included humanity in all he is doing. Last week in Genesis 9, we saw Grandpa Noah mess up big time. Uh, He got drunk, which opens the door for his son Ham to sin by dishonoring his father. Uh, We also rejoiced, however, that picture was there, but we rejoiced because even though Noah face plants hard at the end of his life, he was still remembered in Hebrews 11 as someone who became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Uh, This week we break into chapter 10, and this chapter is widely considered to be a very difficult chapter to preach. In fact, one commentator, uh, Dr. Leupold, said this, It may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. (laughs) Thanks, Doc. That's encouraging. All right. Uh, However, he's not the only voice. There was another guy, Dr. William Albright. Uh, He is not a biblical conservative, by the way. Like, I don't mean politically, I mean in the way he views the Bible, he's not a conservative. He describes it this way. The 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishing, accurate document. That's William Albright. One more voice. This is Dr. James Boyce. I didn't mean to rhyme there, but because I'm a rapper during the week, it just happens sometimes. So, uh, He said, Dr. James Boyce said this about chapter 10. Uh, it's a chapter that is surely one of the most interesting and important in the entire word of God. Okay, so you got some varying voices. Uh, I'm hoping the other guys are right uh, and not Dr. Leupold. So let's read the first 14 verses of chapter 10, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us today. Now, these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Riphoth, and Togomar. And the sons of Javan were Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dedanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Ramah and Sabtika. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. 
From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehobothur and Kalah and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah. That is the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ladim and, and, and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim and Pathrusim and Kastluhim, from which also came the Philistines, and Kaphtarim. Praise God for his word. Difficult chapter to preach and read. Uh, aren't you glad you didn't have to read that in front of everyone? Amen. Ancient names are fun. Okay. So what we have here is a genealogy of sorts, okay? Now, this genealogy doesn't only trace individual family lines, but the development of nations through the offspring of Noah's sons, okay? This is not an exhaustive list of all the people groups that descended from Noah's sons, but it is surprisingly detailed for the time it was written. Now, it seems you'll notice, if you're astute, that parts of Genesis 10 and 11 are out of order chronologically, there's a lot of theories about that, but we can't be sure really why it appears this way. Um, there's times where, like, like right here, when it talks about, uh, towards the end, uh, verse 5 says, From these coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Okay, that actually makes more sense chronologically after the Tower of Babel, which is recorded in Genesis 11. So we don't know why it was written down this way. Um, there are theories, there are people that have answers, but there's enough varying ones where I'm kind of leaving that at. We got all the information, whether or not it's laid out chronologically isn't totally that important, okay? So that might be confusing for you if you were noticing it, so I just wanted to address it. Now, in the middle of these 14 verses, there's a guy by the name of Nimrod who seems to get an honorable mention. Let me just refresh our memories on that. I'm in verse Eight, it says, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. Okay, so we got Nimrod here. He, he kind of features most prominently in these 14 verses. Now, this phrase, before the Lord, uh, when you heard it or read it, I'm sure you had the same reaction I did. It seems like a positive thing. But this, this term or this language of before the Lord, it really is more like in the face of the Lord, kind of in a, in a boastful kind of pushback way, okay? So what seems like is being said is that the arrogance of Ham, Noah's son, passed down to his son Cush, which then passed down to his son Nimrod. Uh, I was thinking about it, and I, I think I remember as a teenager when I did a dumb things a few times, my parents called me Nimrod. This does not help us in any way interpret this passage. However, I guess maybe that's where that came from. Uh, anybody else ever called Nimrod in your life at any point? So I wasn't a, I wasn't a weird, like, western side of Illinois thing. Okay, good. Awesome. You just never know, right? You're that close to the Mississippi River. Weird stuff happens, and other people don't know what you mean. So there we go. Uh, so... Now, the name Nimrod likely means to revolt, as in revolting against God. And many commentators suggest that when the text says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter, it should be taken to mean not that he was a hunter of game, but a hunter of men. Uh, the Hebrew word is used elsewhere in reference to uh, a violent invasion of the person's rights and the, and the rights of men. So 
some corroborating evidence for that. Josephus was a first century historian. He wrote this. Nimrod was a bold man and of great strength of hand, and he gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them to a constant dependence on his own power. So why am I telling you all of this? First of all, it's important that we don't miss what's really being said here, and it's going to help us understand what I believe the Lord wants us to pull out of this text today. But I also want to protect any of you from doing the, um, the stop and pop Bible baby name thing, you know, where you like pray and open your Bible and you point to a part of the page and there's a name there and you're like, oh, you know, I don't want you to end up in Genesis 10, point down at Nimrod, see, ooh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That sounds cool. I'm going to name my kid Nimrod, okay? I just don't want, Nimrod was not a good guy, all right? I just want to make sure you know that. I'm assuming you wouldn't name your baby after bad guys in the Bible, hopefully. Uh, but I just, I love you, and I love whatever children the Lord may bless you with in the future, and I don't want them to be named Nimrod, okay? So I'm just putting a flag in the ground there. Nimrod, not a good guy, okay? Keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, hallelujah. It, what, what, seems, what seems to be shown here is that Nimrod was infected with the same pride that fueled his grandfather Ham's sin. But he took it to a whole other level. It seems Nimrod believed himself to be much better than the people around him, so much so that he felt justified in violently subduing and subjugating them. It's interesting that this kind of pride shows up in the midst of a chapter that is one of the strongest reasons it should not be able to exist. It is this kind of pride where deluded men and women feel superior to others that fuels the satanic evil we often refer to as racism. Racism is absolutely antithetical to all the Bible teaches, and it is the offspring of sinful pride and pitiful ignorance. You cannot harbor racism in your mind or heart and not incur the wrath of God. Whether through his active or passive wrath, God will not tolerate racism and will deal justly with all who embrace it. Through the mention of Nimrod, here in chapter 10, we're given a glimpse of the ugliness that flows from pride and the lie of racial superiority. But it also shows us part of why Racism is among the most despicable and foolish lies that humans can possibly believe. Why is that? I'm going to give you three reasons. Maybe you're not here with me yet, but I'm going to give you three reasons why what I just said is undeniably true. And the first springs out of what we see here in chapter 10 and what has been a strong theme through this entire series. And so if you haven't been here with us or able to be here for all of it, I would encourage you to go back because this, you know, this is an incredibly difficult chapter to preach. However, I've been really looking forward to it because of what the conversation it's opening up for us and how it actually falls in line perfectly with the rest of what we've seen throughout uh, the first nine chapters of Genesis. So the first point I'm going to give you out of this is that we share the same story. Does that sound familiar? It does, right? If you've been around at all, you've heard a podcast, we share the same story story. I'm giving you reasons why racism is among the most despicable and perverted lies that humans can believe. 
We share the same story. This is part of why the first 11 chapters of Genesis are so important for us. We see first that we all descend from Adam and Eve, but again here we see that we can all trace our roots back to the same ancient family, Noah and his sons. If you want to later, you can go and look at how the study of linguistics has shown connections between people groups mentioned here in this table of nations uh, that we never would have assumed otherwise. There are people that have been able to use this and, and look at some of the disbursement that's talked about here and uh, then look for clues and connections among people that they wouldn't have found otherwise. Uh, there's, there's a lot of corroboration out there on that. Uh, I didn't have time to give it to all of you, and for some of you, that would be a real snore. So, um, you know, I'm just going to let you know it's out there. Uh, there are many who hesitate to talk about what is commonly referred to as the brotherhood of humanity or the fact that humankind really is one big family. Now, this fear often comes from people thinking that to acknowledge our connected history will cause people to think that through it, through the connected history, we can be saved. And that is problematic because we are all God's creation. We all do have the blood of either Shem, Ham, or Japheth running through our veins, but this does not make us children of God in an eternal sense. Let me read you this. John 1.12 says, It is those who receive Jesus and believe on his name who are given the right to become children of God. Right? And so you'll hear, you'll hear people often misunderstand what it means that we are created by God. And, and they will use the vernacular or the verbiage, we are all children of God. And thus think that means that they are safe in an eternal sense. Well, the Bible's clear. Yes, we do have a common creator, and we have even common ancestry, but that is not what uh, it all comes down to in terms of our eternal destination. Uh, as far as eternity is concerned, and being a, a child of God in an eternal sense, that is done by faith, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. John 1.12 says that plainly. Uh, so this is true, right? Our, our shared heritage, the fact that we, the humankind is one family, we see that here as we begin to see the disbursement of peoples out from uh, the, the sons of Noah. That is, that is true. Our shared history and our, our lineage is undeniable. Okay, Racism is partially due to an ignorance of history. And Paul picked up this theme in his sermon at the Areopagus in Acts 17. I'm going to read you Acts 17, verses 22 through 29. This is, this is Paul. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects, for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. I'm going to read verse 26 again. And he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Our common ancestry is believed by Paul, believed by all the biblical writers, should be believed by us. Racism, on the other hand, denies the beauty of God's design. Diversity was decreed by God and is a part of his sovereign plan. To see people who are different by God's design as of lesser beauty or importance than another human is no different than walking up to an artist after they finish their masterpiece, spitting in their face and telling them that their work is no good. Do you see yet why racism ticks God off? It's unacceptable. It's untenable for those of us that would follow God, follow Christ, and be called God's children. So part of why we see out of Genesis 10, why the the kind of pride, the kind of hate, the willingness to subjugate others that Nimrod got into, why that is, it's, it's interesting that his story is sandwiched in between this Part of God's word where we see the intentional diversity of God, we see him causing uh, the disbursement of peoples and uh, the the various beauty that is seen within the human race. Very interesting. Uh, It's almost as if God was doing something on purpose there. Uh, So the first thing I told you is we, we share the same story. We see that plainly here. We see that in Paul's words in Acts. Uh, The second thing I'm going to give you These are reasons why we know for sure racism is an evil that God will not tolerate. The second point is we share the same struggle. We share the same struggle. I'm going to read you Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not only united in our common ancestry, that we all descend from Adam and then from Noah and his sons. We are also united in our struggle against sin. We are all suffering the effects of our own sin and the sins that have been committed against us and the sins of the whole world. I learned this in a vibrant way uh, when I was a younger man. Um, So that it makes sense, I'll just tell you briefly. The the first portion of my life up until about the age 10, uh, I I lived in a home where there was physical abuse, there was mental abuse. It was a very difficult situation. It was a dark situation, okay? And so that was the context with which I learned how to be a little human, and it was very difficult. And so... Uh, by God's gracious providence, he, he moved me along and out of that situation. Um, and going on from there, uh, I had difficulties. I had lingering anger. I was able to mask it oftentimes. But really, if you could have peeled back and looked on the inside, it was very black. It was very not much love, if any, at all. And actually, there was, there was a point where I made a conscious decision to hate everybody because that was a coping mechanism, I've now learned, that allowed me to believe no one could hurt me 
anymore. And that was, you know, a lot of people that were supposed to care for me and love me had hurt me. And so I thought, well, this is easy. If I hate you, whether I know you or not, right from meeting you, I'll just hate you. Then it doesn't matter what you do to me. Uh, I'm expecting the shoe to drop, basically. And so that's kind of the, the framework I lived in. God, I, God began a process in me uh, from age 10 moving forward, working on that and, and bringing me through a process of healing. Um, but the culmination of that came uh, on a day that I'll never forget. And so uh, when I was 16, I went to work at Camp Dry Gulch. Uh, that's where I met Natalie. And uh, we were there serving kids together. And, well, we weren't together at that point. I had to work really hard to get her to uh, give up and get with me, so to speak. So uh, at this point, we weren't together yet. But that did happen. And yay, that was a really great part of the story. But the, so we had an orientation week or whatever. And so they teach you all the stuff you're supposed to do and not do. And then they give you your first bunk of kids, okay? And so my first bunk of kids, and I had mentioned earlier, so from age 10 to 16, I lived in a very rural town on the Mississippi River in western Illinois. There was 4,000 people in the town, right? Like the high schools around here have 4,000 people. That was the whole town, okay? So very rural. It was very much like a, you know, corn-fed, husky jeans. Like I might as well have wore overalls. I didn't, but that was kind of the cultural context I was coming out of. That was, that was me. So I'm here. I'm ready for my first bunk of kids, and here they come. First bunk of kids, first year being a camp counselor, <clears throat> I get this group of kids that came straight from inner city Detroit. Every one of them was African American. Every one of them was wild as could be. They all had backstories that were difficult. They were all coming out of super difficult situations Within 20 minutes of them being in my bunk and we're all just like kind of getting settled, my belt disappeared. I don't know how they got it. I don't know where it went. I never saw it again. My belt was gone, okay? However, by God's grace, begin connecting with the kids, uh, went and did a meal in chapel. We come back and part of our routine is every night we would pray with each kid. We would go around to, you know, sit down with them, talk to them a little bit, pray with them. And it was part of what happened at camp. It was great. And so <clears throat> this thing happened as I begin to talk to them and I'm listening to their stories and I'm hearing what they're asking me to pray for. I'm beginning this, I'm, there's this thing that keeps resonating and I'm understanding like these kids, we couldn't have been culturally different, right? Like it was absolute different worlds that we were coming from. However, I recognized the pain that they were going through it was the same stuff I had experienced, same exact stuff I was going through as a result of having been sinned against in my own sin. And in that moment, as, as that realization happened, as I'm going around praying with those kids, I, I, I honestly can't tell I, I know God began a process in me on December 15th, 1995, the first time I ever heard the gospel preached, and they sang nothing but the blood. I told you about that recently. He started something there, but I, I don't know. Something happened on that day. Something broke inside of me, the, the wall that I had built. I, I, I'll tell you, this is the only way I know how to say it. I don't think I loved anybody up until that point. But I loved those kids. For the first time in my life, I loved somebody. And I wanted God's best for them. And it came, this is my point, God used me connecting to them and he connected me to them by letting me see that our pain and our struggle was the same. Even though 
Had you stayed at a practical 10,000-mile view, you may have said, well, none of our struggles could have been similar because they were in inner, inner city Detroit and I was wherever I was at. Right? Uh, not important to the story, but just so you know how the rest went, the next day, they gave me a white bandana and called me Snowflake for the rest of the week. <laughs> and we did a lot of rapping together, and it was pretty good. So... That's what happened. Um, what racism does, though, is it denies the singularity of our struggle. We are all struggling against sin in all of its wretched and horrific forms. That's the truth. Now, here's the part where some of you may not be happy. This goes for the racist as well. Those of you who feel superior to those who feel superior to others need to check yourself and repent as well. Part of how I got so angry as a kid wasn't just familial abuse and difficult things in that situation. Uh, the school that I attended in Southern California where I lived until I was 10 uh, was predominantly not white. And so I realize that sometimes th there are those that would say to me, hey man, you, you're, you're really getting out in some dangerous water here because you're talking about racism and you're the whitest dude around. Uh, you basically, you know, reek of white privilege. I get that that could be a position you could take, but just if you just give me a second to say, uh, I understand that I am in the cultural majority in the current context that I live. However, I was in a place where I wasn't when I was a kid, and it was real hard, and I, and I get it, as much as that experience can allow me to get it. I had, on multiple occasions, one, one time to the point of near hospitalization, the slobber beat out of my mouth on the schoolyard as a kid. I spent a lot of recesses. I knew, that, I knew those school grounds real good. I knew where every hole in the fence was, because if somebody sprung out on me or I got caught by myself, I knew which way I needed to run, okay? To the point I had a knife stashed on the, on the grounds and this, I could take you to the place right now. It may still be there. I don't know. That's, that's what it was like. And so I, I understand, and that's part of where the anger came from. That's part of where the darkness that I explained to you earlier came from. And so uh, part of what ended up happening because of that, because me being different from the majority of that context. Uh, there was a point where I lived in a small community up in the mountains in California in a trailer park. There was a lot of meth and there was a lot of white supremacists. And as a nine-year-old that had been beat up a whole lot by people that were not white, I was a great candidate. And I'm telling you right now, the gang had already started to groom me and was preparing me to come into the fold of that. Why do I tell you that? There's a risk in me saying that. Because you could think, oh man, you got remnants of that, you got residue of that. I don't think so. I think Jesus took care of all of that. Uh, I really do. But the reason I'm telling you that is to go back to that point of we are all struggling against sin in all its wretched and horrible forms. And so somebody that has believed the lie of racism that we can feel very justified to feel superior to them, forgetting our own flavor of sin or our own brand of deception. Racist 
don't need you to sit on a high horse and feel better than them. They need you to pray for them. They need your heart to be broken for them because if somebody actually is harboring racism in their heart, there's a couple things you can know. One, no matter how arrogant or confident they may seem, they are shattered on the inside. I promise you that's true because if they have fallen into that particular set of lies, you know they don't know that their identity can be found and rooted in something much deeper and better than the color of their skin. They are devoid of that truth and so they're gripping for something And you don't know what the circumstances were that may have led somebody to, you know, put put a kid in a vacuum of any familial love or connection, really any friends, anybody looking out for them, taking care of them, and somebody walks up to them and says, hey man, do you want to be a part of a group? Do you want somebody to look out for you and care for you? You can understand this isn't just gangs that are motivated by racial motivations, this is how all gang activity works. And honestly, if, if the church was the light of the world that, that she's called to be in a more vibrant way, there would be less gangs because people would know the people of God will love me and bring me in and take me in and they'll be my family. And so the, the appeal that sometimes wicked people use to draw others in would not be so appealing, okay? Uh, we need to pray for racists. We need to let our hearts be broken for those deceived by racism, And some of you need to repent for feeling like you're justified and feeling superior to those that believe they're superior. Hallelujah. We share the same story. We share the same struggle. But we also share the same solution. Let's go back to Acts 17. I stopped before at verse 29. I'm going to continue Paul's thought as he's preaching there at the Areopagus. He he says, therefore, so he said everything he said before, right? I notice you have an idol to an unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. That part is one of my favorite lines in the Bible. He is, does, Paul just does not care, does he? I notice you have an idol to an unknown God. I'm here to tell you who he is, right? Just right in their face. It's the man. Uh, so he says all that, he basically, you know, gives them the rundown on who God is and how in control he is. And then, then he says this, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That's how Paul ends his treaties. All people everywhere should repent. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, hear me, please. It doesn't matter what we look like, where we are from, what culture we identify with, every single one of us desperately and undeniably need Jesus. This is not some weak appeal for everyone to get along. This is the theological reality that must inform the way we think and live. Every one of us needs Jesus. We do share the same story. We do share the same struggle. 
Well, I'm not as bad as some other person. The very fact that you just thought that, if you go back and see how Jesus deals with different people with different types of deceptions and what they're dealing with and Satan's attempts to pull them away from God, the people he's most ticked off about is the ones who are blind to the fact that they need him. The people, he says, you brood of vipers, you, you are whitewashed tombs full of men, dead men's bones. How will you escape hell? Did he say that to the harlot? Did he say it to the adulteress? Is that who he talked to like that? No. He talked to the Pharisee that way. The one who would stand off from those people and decide that they had it all together. They had it all figured out. That their sin was not so wretched as perhaps these others around them. It's offensive to God when we think that way. Here's the truth, friend. I am no better than anyone. You are no better than anyone. We will all stand before God on that day, and our only hope will be to declare the name of the perfect one. And his name is Jesus. Do you see how we are connected in these things? Do you see how out of Genesis 10, there, it is undeniable there is no room for the lie of racism to be among God's people. Galatians 3.28 declares with zero ambiguity the precious reality of the gospel's power to unite us eternally. This is Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm making a point out of Genesis 10 that we have common ancestry. And so <laughs> I've said a lot and I've said, I've said some words. I've said some words and, and put them together in certain ways that it, it may have even sounded to the fancy end of the spectrum. Let me say something real plain and real simple. If you read Genesis 10, racism is stupid. You can quote me on that. Consider all the Bible has to say. Consider all the knowledge that we have. Consider the truth and the reality of the way things really look. Racism is stupid. No frills, no fanciness, but buddy, that's the truth. You can take that one to the bank. Galatians 3.28 declaring here with zero ambiguity that the gospel has power to unite us eternally. That is even stronger than our common ancestry. You look at the fact that we all come from Adam and Eve. You look at the fact that we all come from Noah's family. When you understand that if we had the documentation, we could trace our lineage all back and we would all be a part of this one family that God created, that racism because of that is, is so ignorant. However, the fact that Galatians 3.28 says the gospel erases any of even the distinctions that have developed as a result of time and the ability for people to spread out, for culture to develop. Here's the thing. That doesn't mean that God wants to make everybody that follows him look the same, eat the same food, like the same music, wear the same clothes. That's absolutely not the point. The point is when it comes down to what really matters, when it comes down to relationship with God, the gospel has removed all barriers. There are no more barriers. When it comes to relationship and community and fellowship and all of the beauty that comes in being a part of the body of Christ, 
all of those cultural barriers, none of those should be barriers. What they should be is things that we, those differences should be things that we celebrate because God has been able to take a group of people that would, under any other circumstance, would have nothing to do with each other. We'd have no reason to, no commonality, none of the reason, none of the glue, none of the social glue that normally holds people together. It's not there, but what do we have? We have the fact of Galatians 3.28 and the rest of the Bible tells this beautiful story that the crescendo, the great, beautiful, highest note of it is that for eternity we are going to be united in worship and in the ability to stand and bask in the unveiled face of God to see his glory forever. We're going to, we're going to worship that every tribe, nation, and tongue is going to be there. This the fact that we are united in the solution to our struggle, the fact that we are united because the story was all leading to this place where we would have the possibility of being in perfect, unhindered relationship with God, and one day, perfect, unhindered relationship with one another. Who, you ever thought about that? Man, some of you really struggle with people. I don't because I'm really sweet, so I, I just like everybody, and I don't ever have a problem with anybody. What are you laughing for? That's not true, right? That's Pharisee talk right there. Of course I have problems with people because I have a bad attitude sometimes. Other people have a bad attitude sometimes. And all that, you put that in a mix, man, that's a powder keg. One day we are going to have un, unhindered by sin at all relationship with the God who made us. But it will also be that way for us, one another. And so <laughs> the beauty is we have common ancestry. That makes racism stupid. But we also have a common destiny. That makes racism even dumber because we're going to be together forever. We're going to be singing God's praises forever. We're going to be living in unhindered, perfect relational beauty. Man, I long for that day. And we need to understand that part of our job as Christians is as much as possible to reflect the beauty of that eternal destination to those around us. Part of the greatest, one of the greatest things we can do to show people the reality of the power of the gospel, that Galatians 3.28 is actually true, is to walk without any of the stupidity that Nimrod displayed or that sometimes we display. And friends, sometimes it's subtle. I'm not, I, I mean, I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope this has been clear from what I'm doing. I'm going to say it plainly if it hasn't been. I'm not talking about in this that you can refrain from saying racist stuff or that you can refrain from doing racist things. We are pushing here for what God cares about, what God looks at. What are, the, what are the contemplations of your heart? What goes on in your mind when you're around people different from you? Do you harbor any of this foolishness that afflicted Nimrod and has afflicted so many sins? Do you feel superior to others for any reason whatsoever? Can't have it. The fact that our eternal destiny, made possible by Christ, of being united with God, erases every barrier that we would put up. That's even stronger than our common ancestry in terms of revealing the ignorance, the pitiful ignorance and the stupidity, the evil of racism. So what do we do? I've spent the majority of the time thus far making the case through the fact that we, have, we share a common story, that we share common struggle, and that we share a common solution, that we 
there is no room for racism, that it is uh, a tactic and a work of the enemy, uh, absolutely. And so hopefully that point is made. Hopefully you are assessing uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit whether any of this is harbored in your own mind and heart. Hopefully you're thinking also, what then do we do? This is a reality. This is something our, that people are struggling with. This, there's people that are struggling with having those feelings and thoughts or people that are affected by the fact that people have those feelings and thoughts. So what do we do as God's people knowing that these, these things are unacceptable, that racism, because of what the Bible teaches about humans and about God, is an untenable position. What do we do? A couple things. If you struggle, if you're the person who struggles with racist thoughts or beliefs, you need to confess, you need to repent, and you need to turn from that foolishness immediately. You need to ask for God's help that every ounce of remnant of that that might be down in your heart that that would be drawn out like poison and cast away as far as the east is from the west, which is what the Bible says God does with our sins, and I'm thankful for that. If you're somebody who hates haters or you feel superior to those who believe the lie of racism, you need to confess, repent, and turn from that foolishness immediately because that is not a right or helpful response. Your heart needs to be broken for the fact that there are people entrapped by that lie. And just because your circumstances didn't lead you into that sinful manifestation doesn't make you better than them. They're broken too. And I realize, I realize how risky it is to sound like I'm having compassion on the person that's a racist. But here's what I'm saying. The very fact that we think in terms of that, that we, oh, you're, you're a racist. We're playing into the devil's hand. We're, letting, we're using identifying language to, to stick a label on that person that makes them less than what God sees them as. It's not acceptable. We can't do that with anybody. Jesus hasn't given up on us all the times we've deserved it. We need to let our heart be broken for every form of sin and foolishness that people are entrapped in, including the ones that tick us off the most. If you're somebody who is suffering from the effects of racism, please, dear friend, do not weary in well-doing and realize when the wait seems long that you are not alone. John 17 is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Hebrews tells us more about the fact that Jesus is not a high priest that's far off. Part of what happened, the beauty of the incarnation is that Jesus came, took on flesh, and he experienced what we experienced. He was persecuted. He was hated. But at a higher level than that, uh, Jesus is the eternal son of God. He was there at creation and before. And so this vision in the heart of God for uh, a, a lack of racism and, a, and, a, and more unity and beauty among God's people, we see that expressed in John 17 where he prays a prayer that, that his people would be united to the same degree. Lord, Lord, may they be in unity the way you and I are in unity. This is the way Jesus prayed. This is the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus. This is the last prayer we have recorded from Jesus before Gethsemane and before his uh, betrayal and execution. And so we see in, in the, the heart of God has yearned for the healing of this of all sin, but of this sin in particular, from the very beginning. And so you, what I'm saying to you, friend, I'm just asking you to see you, you're not waiting alone. If you are struggling, if you are feeling the effects of racism in your own life, if you have been 
people have treated you poorly and, 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 and you've, you're tired and, and I get that. I just, I want you to know you're not waiting alone. And every way your heart has been hurt by the manifestation of sin that is racism, every way your heart's been hurt by it, the Lord Jesus, his heart has been hurt an infinite times more. That he hurts for you, he hurts for every way you've experienced that, and he hurts for every other person in the world throughout all of time that has been treated lesser than because of some superficial difference. You're not alone. Last thing I'll say is if you are not suffering the effects of racism, know that brothers and sisters are, and let your heart be broken over it, pray against it with fervor, and look for opportunities to support and stand with those who are afflicted. That's what we can do. I would cap all that off by saying this. What we need to do if, in, in any of those situations, if you, wherever you find yourself on that spectrum, everybody should be covered to some degree. What we all need to do is we need to believe the gospel because the gospel is the only hope for this malady, for all malady, but for this one in particular. It's easy to see how the gospel brings an answer to the despicable evil, the, the absolute pitiful lie that is racism. We must believe the gospel because the gospel levels us out. It tells us plainly, none of us is perfect. All of us are broken. We have all sinned. It tells us plainly, we all have one hope for that, and that's that we would place our faith in Jesus, that we would trust in the fact that he came, he lived the perfect life we couldn't, and then died the death we should have in our place for our sins, that he rose from the grave, that he conquered sin and death. But we know that all of the effects of sin were not out of those woods yet. But in the meantime, we are supposed to work for justice. We are supposed to work in mercy. And we are supposed to love. And we are supposed to push with all of the power that God would give us through the help of his spirit to see our own hearts changed, to see those that would be downtrodden lifted up, and to see those that are entangled in whatever lie they're entangled in set free because where the spirit of God is, there is freedom. The gospel sets us free. Wherever we find ourselves feeling or, or experiencing the effects of these particular sins, I praise God that that's true. There's hope for all of us. May we be a humble people. May we never believe the lie of superiority born of pride and ignorance. May we see that the human story is intertwined with God's redemption story by the scarlet thread of the gospel. And we are all in this together for his glory and our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you, God, for these verses. Thank you for Genesis 10. Lord, sometimes when we struggle to see what it is you're doing in the words you've given us uh, in your scriptures, I thank you that if we cling to the truth that you're intentional, you know what you're doing. If we'll dig in and we'll rely on the power of your spirit to interpret what's happening, to understand the application of what we're supposed to do in light of these scriptures, I thank you that we can have anywhere we go in your Bible, we can be pointed back to the beauty of your gospel, we can have the beautiful experience of being in relationship with you. Thank you that when we encounter your word, Lord, we encounter you. We rejoice in that truth. Help us to, 
Help us to treat your word with more excitement sometimes than we do. Because sometimes, Lord, your word becomes a duty to us. It becomes a a distraction from our distractions, and that's pitiful. Lord, we repent of that sin. Sometimes we can encounter a chapter like Genesis 10 and, and feel like we're just trying to push through it. But God, help us to slow down. Help us to trust that you've done all you've done on purpose, that you've written these words to us on purpose, that you're teaching us and you're training us, you're guiding us, you're forming us, and you're working on us. Lord, we, we want to be in that process. We want to submit ourselves to the sanctifying process of being conformed into the image of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, I, I pray over this congregation, I ask God that any remnant of the lie of racism that may rest in the hearts of people, God, that it would be drawn out like the poison that it is and cast away. God, may we be free to love all people. May we see people the way you do. God, may we rejoice in our common ancestry. May we rejoice in the fact that though we struggle and the manifest is different, sin has entangled all of us. None of us has escaped that. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to fall into traps of feeling superior because our sin, our particular flavor of sin, is somehow more palatable than someone else's. Help us, Lord, to believe that. And help us, God, to run. To run to that same solution. The only only answer we have is the beauty of your gospel. Thank you that your gospel frees us of all sin. It frees us of the entrapment, the chains. Thank you that there is freedom because of the work of your Spirit in our lives and because of the truth of your gospel. We love you, Lord. We ask for these things to be true among us. We pray for every single person, Lord, every single person that's a part of this fellowship, every single person that is in the sphere of influence of people that are a part of this fellowship, God, anybody that is that has felt the wretched effects of the lie of racism. God, we just ask that you would touch them right now, that you would, by the power of your spirit, that you would, you would just place your hands upon them, Lord, that you would comfort them and bring them peace, that you would breathe life into them for their journey, God, that you would strengthen their hands as they patiently await the manifestation of your dream, Lord, where racism, racism is dead, where reconciliation is complete, And we are free to love you and love others perfectly forever. We're waiting, Lord. Thank you that you're waiting as well. We're not alone. We exalt you and we love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.